This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. Get NetSuite's guide, crushing the five barriers to growth when you go to netsuite.com slash twist. And Squarespace, turn your idea into a new website. When you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. And today is your favorite type of show, Ask Jason. We're going to get tons of questions from all over the interwebs, Quora, Reddit, my email box. The first question is coming up right now. And this question is from Quora under the topic venture capital. If you have been offered a job, at a VC, not a top tier, but a well-known one. How do you evaluate this offer? How do you know if the VC is good enough for you? Fantastic, congratulations, Mazel Tov on getting a, uh, an offer from a VC, that's great. I'm assuming from this question that you're a neophyte, you're new to the venture community or else you would know and you would not, uh, if you had a good offer or not. The best way to evaluate a VC firm is to talk to the founders who have received money from that firm. They are the true north. So if they've invested in 20 companies, you could be sure there's one or two founders who may not feel so great about the firm. Things didn't work out, the VCs didn't act well. Those are the people you wanna to talk to and you wanna figure out how did this person behave in a bad situation, right? Because everybody, when things are good, you know, if we all win the lottery, and we go to Vegas this weekend, everybody's going to feel pretty good about it. But if we all lost our shirts and we're all unemployed and the company failed, how people act in defeat, I think, in or in tough times is much more illustrative of how they are as a human. In other words, when the S hits the fan, that's when you can judge someone's character, not when things are going well. When it's all champagne and caviar, Geez, everybody's great, but I've seen people lose their ish many times. So that's how you tell if the VC is good enough for you. Talk to the founders. Additionally, you might find partners who are part of the partnership who've left. You could talk to them as well, although that might get back to the firm and be a little bit weird. If you want to know if you got a good offer, well, the best thing to do is have two or three offers to choose from. Because having two or three offers to choose from creates a marketplace. Then you can compare them to each other. So I always think you need to have two or three offers in order to make a great decision in life. I wouldn't be passive about this. I would be active about it. In other words, I wouldn't go on a message board alone and look for opportunities. That's a great place to start, of course. What I would do is, you said it's not a top tier VC? Well, why don't you make a list of the top tier VCs and email their top people and say, I'm going to make the I'm not I'm thinking about. I'm going to make the jump into venture capital. I've previously been a founder. I've previously been a lawyer, whatever. And the reason I want to be in venture capital is I'm passionate about sourcing deals and meeting with VCs, meeting with entrepreneurs, and I love hearing their stories, and I love being supportive, and this is my competitive advantage. I have an offer. I was wondering if you'd want to meet for coffee because I'm looking to make sure I make a really great decision when I do sign up to work at a firm. Now you've signaled to the person that you're serious, you're ambitious, you've taken the time, you understand that you have to ha provide value, you've provided value in the email. So dear Michael Moritz, I, or dear Doug Leone from Segoia, or dear Bill Gurley from Benchmark, you don't know me, but I am the number one attorney at Wilson Sonsini or Fenwick, whatever it is, and I wanna jump to the other side of the table, not just representing founders and VCs, but I wanna be a VC, I have an offer, I'm considering taking it, but I was wondering if I could meet with you for 20 minutes, anytime, anywhere, and discuss why I think I might be a great fit for Benchmark, Sequoia, Kleiner, whatever. And here's uh, a link to my resume. Here are the customers I've worked with. And this is why I'm passionate about it. If you have 15 minutes, anytime, anywhere, I'll meet you 6 a.m. to midnight, anytime, anywhere, at a, for a cup of coffee. Would love to just get your feedback. You do that, it could come across as quite charming. And if you follow up three or four times and you're annoying, now you've just demonstrated persistence. So ambition, persistence, 
uh, self-awareness. These are the things that venture capitalists are going to be looking for. And it's a partnership. So we, that you have to be a good partner. They have to understand that you're a good partner, somebody that they will spend time with. They don't call them venture capital corporations. They don't call them, you know, um, companies. They call them partnerships for a reason. You're going to spend 10 years, 20 years with the same group of people doing the same activity. They have to want to spend time with you. So does anybody want to spend time with a mercenary, a-hole, jerk, narcissist, uh, unaware person? No. You want to have somebody who's self-aware, intelligent, and smart. And so if you're self-aware, intelligent, smart, you have empathy, um, you're hardworking, that's what they're going to look for. So think about for yourself. If you could start a platoon and you had to go to war with those people and these people are going to be sleeping in the foxhole with you, that's what it's like. These people are going to be... Uh, you know, your book club or your poker club, you know, where you're going to spend every week 10 hours with them, or you're going to be in your parenting circle, whatever, come up with a metaphor, your golf foursome, you, you're going to want to spend time with them. That's the structure of these organizations. They're partnerships. You're not just a widget in a wheel. You have to really be so good that they want to spend weekends with you, have dinner with you, go on vacation with you. Think about it that way, like you're joining a family. Okay, great question. Let's take another question. This question, again, comes from the venture capital core topic. Just so people are clear, I'm not a venture capital. I'm a solo practicing uh, angel seed investor with a team around me. That's the way I've designed my life. Uh, but I do know a lot about venture capitalists because I'm associated with a couple of venture capitalist firms and I uh, do business with them all the time. Uh, why would a venture capitalist fund a project like Quora, which does not generate any revenue from ads or anything like other sites? Great question. Quora was founded by a rich individual who could fund it himself. And he's playing the long game, which is he wants to put off raising money for a long time. They've done some experiments, I think, in virtual currency, um, but it's not an expensive site to run. It doesn't have a physical product in the world like Tesla or SpaceX uh, or brand list that we had on the podcast or Oculus. So it's a pretty, uh, the cost of running Quora is pretty low and the value it provides is very high. Eventually, Quora could have a premium subscription fee where to read the answers or to post answers you paid. I think people would pay for it. Uh, ten, if Quora was 10 bucks a month, $100 a year uh, to post questions to it, I think people would pay. Um, I'm not sure what their exact traffic is, but venture capitalists love people who play the long game. And I think the founding team came out of Facebook, if I'm, if I'm correct. And uh, I'll have one of my producers look that up and confirm for me that. Uh, but they're playing the long game for sure. They've been around for close to 10 years now. It's closer to 10 than it is five. I'm almost certain that Quora was founded in 2009, maybe something in that range. Quora founding date. Um, is it in the chat room? I'll take a look. Yeah. So uh, 2009, right. So they, they're coming up on their 10 year anniversary. So they're playing the long game and it's not the first time somebody has, you know, Facebook took a long time before they turned on their ads. Same thing with Instagram. And that's a tried and true practice here. In fact, that's what venture capital is designed for. So the fact that you're asking this question, why would they fund this? It's just a naive question. No offense. The, the reason venture capital exists is to take these kind of crazy swings for the fences. Uh, Adam D'Angelo is the, the founder. He's the former Facebook CTO. I believe he he's probably put in tens of millions of dollars of his own money. So when a founder makes a ton of money, let's say they've got $200 million sitting in a bank account. Well, it's sitting there. So if they want to spend 10, 20, 30 million dollars on their, you know, passion project like Quora and then turn on revenue in the 10th year. Oh my God, VCs love that stuff. They love that. They love somebody who's willing to build up. And I don't we should take a look at what the traffic is, but I think the traffic to Quora, I'm gonna take a guess here that Quora has 100 million visitors a month. I'm just taking a guess. And I'm gonna say more than two-thirds of that's from America. So I'll say 50 to 60 million U.S. Uh, and somebody will uh, look up Quora traffic for me right now. Uh, 
traffic in the U.S. for Quora, somebody can take a look and see if they can find that, but I'm going to guess at least 100 million. Uh, viewers, 100 million users a month. And we could also figure out where they are in terms of Quora US rankings for traffic. And I'm going to guess they would be in the top 200, maybe. Uh, anybody see that uh, up there right now? Let's take a look. Cody's typing something. I'm taking a quick look on DuckDuckGo. Here we go. Alexa. Uh, says that they are site info. Oh my God. As of September of this year, 300 million monthly. So that means they probably have 100 million in the US. They're the 93rd largest site in the world, the 48th in the United States. That's larger than I ever thought it would be. So if they can um, get... Let's say, and it's all search engine traffic, by the way. People are just bouncing. You know, that's where they get their traffic from. Uh, right now, it says search traffic was as high as 65%. Alexis thinking it's over 50. So it's a very search-driven site. And I would put the value of Quora with 300 million. I think they could easily get 2% of those people to pay. So if it's 300 million uh, uniques a month, um, 6 million paid members at $10 a month each or $5 a month each would be 300 to 600 million in subscription revenue. I could see Quora having 100 million in subscription revenue in the first year. So let me make that just very easy math for you. $100 a year, 1 million people paying. Do you think there's a million people out there who pay for Quora? If a hundred, over a hundred million people are paying for Netflix, I think there's a million people who would pay for Quora. I would pay for I would pay a hundred dollars a year for Quora, five bucks a month, no problem, easy peasy. So uh, that is a fabulously naive uh, outsider question. You obviously do not understand uh, how the venture business works or uh, how rich people think, but that's fine. That's why Quora exists is for you to get informed. So, congratulations. Hey, everybody, let me take a moment to tell you about LinkedIn's talent solutions. We all know it's brutally hard right now to hire somebody. Unemployment's at an all-time low, and people have their choice of where they can go work. It's hard to find great people, but here is the hack that we use here at Launch and at Inside.com that's worked. It's going to LinkedIn and placing an ad on LinkedIn. If you go to linkedin.com slash twist, you're going to get a $50 credit towards your first job post on LinkedIn. Once again, that URL is linkedin.com slash T-W-I-S-T to get the 50, to get a 50. Go get the 50. And here's the reason why you need to get that and get that ad placed. It's because we've used it and we got so many studio director uh, applications. We received 68 candidates in two weeks. I'm not talking about like just dumb resumes coming in 68 qualified candidates in just two weeks and we were able to land director charles we spoke with 17 of them because there were so many good ones think about what that could do for your business right now imagine having 68 candidates to choose from speaking with 17 of them and here's the punchline it cost us 140 dollars for the ad it was so easy breezy LinkedIn has 70% of the US workforce you know that because you're there you have a LinkedIn page and it is the greatest way to find talent today. There are 22 million professionals viewing and applying to jobs on LinkedIn every week. Not every year, not every month, every week. Over 20 million professionals just waiting to hear about your job. And these are sometimes passive searchers. You know, they're not looking. But hey, maybe they see an interesting job come up. Oh, working for JCal at This Week in Startups. That sounds more interesting to me. Well, that's the magic of LinkedIn Talent Solutions. They have all the professionals out there and they have all their profiles and you get in front of them. Terms and conditions, of course, apply. But get that $50 credit towards your first job posting. You're going to love it. You're going to love the results and staffing up to take on the world in 2019. Get in there. LinkedIn.com slash twist. LinkedIn.com slash TWIST. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Let's take another question. All right, this is from Reddit, entrepreneur uh, subreddit. I've been spending some time there. Uh, I think I'm 
my handle's just Jason Calacanis. It might be Jason M. Calacanis. What are some cliches that entrepreneur, cliche entrepreneur phrases that make your eyes glaze over? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of bad advice out there. Uh, I'm trying to think of what is the worst advice I've heard of late. Um, you know, that's a really good question. You know, all of this advice is situational. So let me just take a different spin on this because I can't think of a cliche off the top of my head that I hate um, or that make me glaze over. What I will tell you is advice is situational and then there are outliers and those uh, outliers are, you know, the exceptions that make the rule. So if you see some company raise a ridiculous amount of money and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It could be a fluke. It could be a random piece of behavior. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you have to take all the advice you can get as a founder. And then you have to understand that the best decisions, the best decisions you can make will come from data and talking to customers. Now, uh, creating value, building a brand. I know the original poster brings up some of those things. You know, building a brand is a real thing. You know, Apple's brand means something to people. Instagram's means something to people. Even brandless, the unbranding brand one now means something to people. Hustle, I think, and disruption are two words that are becoming maligned. The reason hustle is becoming maligned is because I think people find Gary Vaynerchuk a little bit abrasive in his approach. He's candid. He's from New York. He wants to see people succeed. And I think people on the West Coast are a little, it's an East Coast, West Coast thing. They're like, you don't, it doesn't have to be crazy at work and it, you can take it easy. You don't have to hustle. A lot of that advice about not hustling is a reaction to mental health breakdowns that people have had, suicides, uh, burnout. And again, it's situational to my point earlier. If you're in a competitive space and it's Lyft versus Uber versus Sidecar and you don't hustle, you become Sidecar. Or if you hustle less, you become Lyft. Now, is Lyft a failure at a 20 or $30 billion valuation versus Uber's 70, 80, 90, 100? No, it's not a failure. It's a huge success. Anybody who can build a 10, $20 billion business has built a huge success. But if they had hustled, maybe they would have beat Uber if they had more hustle in them. And so to be anti-hustle means you're saying you're okay with not being first place. The teams that win in the NBA, the Olympians, they're hustling and they're sacrificing. So people who achieve greatness sacrifice. They may sacrifice by not seeing their family or kids as much as people who do. If an Olympian said, I am going to train for the next 60 days in the mountains and I'm not gonna see my kids for the next 60 days, many people would say, Okay, your kids will appreciate that. You made that sacrifice. They will forgive you for taking those 60 days off from the family to go train at some elevation. Um, if you come back and you've got a gold or silver medal and you placed in the Olympics, it's an understandable sacrifice. When it comes to business, people might be less, uh, think that's less meaningful. I don't. I think if you had to sacrifice, maybe not see your family for some period of time, you went on a business trip, you might be setting the example that hard work is virtuous and that hustling is worth it. Now, if you're hustling and you're sitting in front of your computer every day, replying to email that is not actually moving the needle for you, well, maybe that you didn't need to sacrifice and not see your family or not see your friends. Under no circumstances should you hustle to the point at which you have a nervous breakdown and consider a horrible decision like suicide. And so I think it's very easy to fall on either side of the hustle debate, but the truth is it's situational and it's very nuanced. And I don't criticize people who don't wanna hustle because they wanna have an easy life and they wanna surf and they wanna wake up naturally and go to bed uh, under the stars and not check their phone for a month. Mazel tov. If that's your choice, go for it. I'm big on individual freedom, and I'm big on people having individual freedom at different points in their life. I do not hustle in the insane way I used to. I used to be a seven-day-a-week, 12-hour-a-day person, but you know what? Now I'm at the top of the hill, and I fought my way here, and I can take it a little bit easy. Yeah, of course. If I want to take a vacation, I can take it. If I want to come into work at 11 o'clock, I can do that, and that's what I do. I work from home. I don't do any meetings until 11, 
because I like to have that time in the morning with my family. I like to have that time in the morning to write and to think. I've earned that, but previously I was getting into work at 7 a.m., 8 a.m. every day and staying till midnight. And I I was very one-dimensional in that way for a, a good part of my career when I was coming up. I don't regret it. Maybe rich and powerful. And so I think that there's this hustle debate is really interesting. Um, most of the time when I hear people say, you don't have to hustle and doesn't you don't have to be crazy at work, they're already millionaires or decamillionaires or centimillionaires. And they're looking backwards saying, oh, I could have done this without. But you know, if Elon Musk takes the pedal off of Tesla, well, it could die. So he's got no choice but to hustle. And if you have Zuckerberg as a competitor in your Snapchat and you take your foot off the pedal, you're going to get run over, which, by the way, is what happened to Snapchat. They got run over and they, they still exist. It's a $5 billion business. But, you know, Zuckerberg definitely outhustled them. And so now when it comes to disruption, that's a whole nother charged word. What disruption means is you're not going to accept the status quo and you're willing to take risks and you're willing to maybe bend the rules. Disruption has a negative connotation when the bending of the rules breaks something in society. So if you want to bend the rules about scooters and somebody takes their scooter into the middle of the street and kills themselves, yeah, you're going to look like a douche. And if you you know, allowed the scooter to go too fast because you wanted people to get to the destination too fast. You can come up with all the different examples out there. If you're going to bend the rules, you're going to reinterpret the rules like a scooter company might or Airbnb might, you better make sure people are not getting hurt in the process too badly or that the risk is not too high. If you're taking a ton of risk, well, that can be dumb. Uh, and so you better make sure that bending the rules is not dangerous um, and is not in the your interest above the consumers and societies. So Facebook bent the rules a whole bunch. They weren't checking who was buying ads, and the Russians bought ads in rubles to try to create racial tension in our country to subvert the African-American vote versus, uh, you know, in favor of Trump and against Hillary. This kind of dark stuff. That's the kind of disruption society does not like. Or wholesale giving over your information to advertisers and partners so you can make more money. That's the kind of disruption that society doesn't like. Disrupting saying, hey, you can rent out your extra bedroom in Paris and Tokyo uh, and make a little bit of extra money if you lost your job or provide a $50 a night option for people who can't afford to go to Paris and you opened up Paris and Tokyo to a whole nother group of people to visit, mazel tov, high five, great. That's the kind of bending of rules we need. We need some bending of rules. If it's the bending of the rule of you, you, know, you eliminate uh, dealerships from the car buying process like Tesla's done and they sell direct, that's great. Nobody wants to deal with some dealership nonsense middleman who ruins the process. We all just want to buy direct on a website and get it. So understand if you want to, if we're talking about hustle and disruption, which are charged words, there are situationally times when you want to hustle and you want to disrupt, but you have to do it in a sophisticated fashion. You don't want to hustle for no reason, and you certainly don't want to disrupt and have people get hurt in the process. Great question. Hey, everybody, it's time for you to have your startup grow up. No more shared spreadsheets or manual processes. No more legacy systems costing you all this time. No, it's time for you to move your business to the cloud and you're going to use NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in one easy to use cloud platform. You've heard their ads before and you know what they help you do. They're going to save you time and money and get rid of all those head headaches that you have by managing sales, finance, and accounting, as well as orders and HR, human resources, human capital, right from your desk or even on your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and the fastest-growing companies use NetSuite by Oracle to manage their businesses. And now it's available to you. And the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. So don't get scared. Just because all the big companies use it doesn't mean your startup's not ready for NetSuite by Oracle. Here is your call to action. This is super important. NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. And you can unleash your business's full potential by getting this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. And who doesn't want to crush those barriers to growth? Just so you know, some of them include finding your next customer, increasing your profits, cash flow visibility. In other words, are you going to run out of cash? <laughs> Tackling all those regulations and 
hey, of course, building a winning team. I want you to go to netsuite.com slash twist, netsuite.com slash twist to get crushing the five barriers to growth. It's time for your business to grow up and start using NetSuite by Oracle. Go ahead and get that crushing the five barriers to growth guide at netsuite, S-U-I-T-E dot com slash twist, T-W-I-S-T. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, let's take another question here. This is again from the Entrepreneur subreddit, which I love so much. What are your most effective networking tips to help build valuable relationships? I love this question. I'll take you back to Jay Cal in the 90s. Here's what I used to do. I was broke, but I wanted to be powerful and I wanted to network. So what I would do is I would go to a conference. I didn't have a ticket. I'd hang out in the lobby, take out my laptop, and I'd work. And I'd meet people. I'd find one high-profile target, and I'd say, hey, what are you doing for dinner? And they'd say, nothing. You got plans? I'm like, no, I got a, I got a, I got a reservation for like, you know, four or six people. You want to grab dinner? And I'd be like, yeah. I'm like, you want to bring anybody? So yeah, great. Now I got three people at dinner. Then I would take their names. I'm like, listen, I got Fred Wilson and Brad Fell coming to dinner. These are two venture capitalists. Then I would ask four entrepreneurs. I'd say, yeah, you know, I'm having a dinner with a couple of my friends. You want to come? They'd be like, oh. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, you know Fred Wilson or Brad Feld? So I trade their names to get the next CEOs. They'd be like, yeah, no, I've always wanted to meet him. Boom. And I remember I did this one time. I was in, uh, um, I was, oh, maybe I shouldn't tell the story. Should I tell the story or not? Let me think. Statute of limitations gone by? Anyway, I was in, I was in, uh, I was at Sundance because uh, my friend David Sachs had a movie, Thank You for Smoking. Uh, my friend Elon Musk was also at Sundance because he's in the movie and he, I think he may have backed it. So we're all at Sundance hanging out. And Walt Mossberg was in Sundance. So I emailed Walt Mossberg and he's like, hey, let's get coffee or whatever. And uh, I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, come over. And uh, I got my friend Elon Musk with me. He's like, I, I didn't ask to meet this your friend. I was just going to have coffee with you. And he kind of admonished me just a little bit about doing this technique. It just happened to be he did it with Elon Musk, who had just invested in Tesla. And I was trying to do a favor for Elon to make sure Elon Musk met Walt Mossberg. I had the emails. This literally happened. Walt Mossberg kind of lectured me on you know, using my meeting with him to get a meeting for Elon, which is hilarious in hindsight. <laughs> but uh, this was my technique. That was how I built those valuable relationships. Um, I would uh, just host dinner and I would pay the bill. Now, again, I was broke. So here's how I do it. I would go to a Mexican joint. Mexican food, not expensive. Also, if you, I would take this two or three person dinner and make it eight people. Then on the way in, I'd say, don't bring menus to the table. Bring the guac and chips, bring the quesadilla, and I would just put out tons of, and bring three orders of frajitas, and put two pitchers of margaritas on the table. People would come, the food would be out already. They'd start eating, oh my God, this is great. Oh, quesadilla, I love that. Now I've controlled, I didn't have everybody ordering mains, I didn't have everybody ordering appetizers, I didn't have anybody ordering their own drinks. I got the sangria. It's cheap. Put a pitcher of beer up there, okay? And it also saves every time, so they get working. I get a $200 bill or $150 bill from a Mexican joint for dinner of eight with all these powerful people. I pick up the check. I'm the mensch. I was the person bringing people together. The person who brings people together gets a disproportionate amount of credit. If you introduce people to each other, you become the connector. So that was my simple technique. Going to events, hanging out in the lobby, trying to leverage a dinner with one or two people who I knew, and then just trade up, socially trade up, right? Who needs to meet this person? Who do they need to meet? Boom, see if I can bring people together. The other thing I did was I started my own little magazine, which was a zine, Silicon Alley Reporter, and I made a top 100 list. Well, when you make the list of the top 100 people, boy, you're going to be powerful. You want to see me doing it today in 2019? This podcast, you're soaking in it. I've got one of the number one business podcasts, investing podcasts in the world. When I invite somebody on here, when my friend Tina Sharkey comes and talks about Brandly, she's going to get customers. And so is the guy from Helm who came on. Well, if I'm ever going to want to buy shares in those two companies, I've networked with them. I spent an hour with them talking about their business. I'm interested in them. So having a podcast is this great excuse to spend an hour with somebody and you're showing interest in them. So if you ever read How to Make Friends, uh, Win Friends and Influence People, whatever the Carnegie Mellon one was, or whoever wrote that book, who wrote that book? How to win friends and influence people. I read it like long ago, but I think the basic, uh, Dale Carnegie wrote it, yeah. Um, this book, this How to Win Friends um, and Influence People was pretty fundamental. 
you know, people will like you if you're interested in them. So the six ways to make people like you become genuinely interested in other people. You can make more friends in two months by being interested in them than in two years by making them interested in you. Smile, pretty basic. Remember that a person's name, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Be a good listener in, our, in encourage others to talk about themselves. Talk in terms of the other person's interest. Make the other person feel important and do so sincerely. Now, if you deploy these six ways to make people like you uh, from that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, the reason that book is always on the top 10 business books of all time is because it's true. If you show an interest in people, um, you're going to make a connection with them. The other thing that makes a connection with people is to be in a high stress or memorable experience with them. I took my team scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. The people who went on that trip are bonded forever. We talk about it all the time. So another example of that is taking people on a hike. It doesn't have to be a dangerous one, but it is, if it is dangerous, they're probably going to bond more. I'm not suggesting you do dangerous stuff together. But things that are peak experiences for people, they're going to bond. Um, and if you're interested in people, it's going to go a long way. That's why podcasting is such a fascinating medium, I believe. It's because people are showing genuine interest in the other person and going really deep. And so if you look at Sam Harris, if you look at Brady Stanellis, if you look at um, Joe Rogan, um, if you look at these people who are becoming really good interviewers, um, uh, and I, hopefully I'm in that category as well, when you become a good interviewer and you ask short questions and you listen deeply and you create a follow-up question based on the answer, that's my big technique. So when you watch the podcast, I'll ask somebody a question and then sometimes you'll say to yourself, oh, Jason asked the same question I was thinking. That's because I'm thinking of you my viewer, my listener, and I'm thinking, what question will you have when listening to that person's answer? So when I'm listening to an answer, I'm not thinking about my next question. I'm thinking about what question do you, the audience, have based on the answer? So I was watching this interview with George Lucas once at a benefit dinner, and they had asked me to interview him. And I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. And then they gave somebody else the interview, and I was kind of crushed about it. Um, but the per George Lucas said during the interview, you know, and they were like, oh, and what influenced you from THX to, you know, Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you know, like, when I got in the car accident, that changed everything. And I kind of looked at the world a little differently. And then the person like looks at their cue cards and like, so the Empire Strikes Back. And, I, and I, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. George Lucas was in a car accident and it changed the way he looked at the world. You didn't ask the question. Everybody in the room was thinking. What, what, how did his thinking change? Where did this accident occur? Was anybody else in the car? What kind of car was driving? Was it a two-way road? Was it on the highway? Was there snow? Did it spin? I mean, come on. So anyway, podcasting is the little hack. Even if your podcast only gets 500 people listening to it and it's about something incredibly niche, I would look at a podcast as a way to do 10 episodes to meet 10 people you want to and bond with them. It's a killer, killer little hack. Um, so anyway, great question. This question is coming from Reddit slash investing. With the stock market in the midst of its worst December since 1931, what industries do you think are recession-proof? Okay, this is an awesome question. Um, people are always going to want to entertain themselves, right? People need to feed themselves. People need to get around. They need to travel. So travel can change. We'll just take that as a microcosm. So when there is a recession, we're not in a recession, we're in a correction. Correction, 20% recession, most people 40, 50% uh, in the stock market going down. So we're in a correction. Corrections are healthy. Corrections are great. We had a 19 or so percent correction a couple of years ago. Stock market gets ahead of itself. People recalibrate. You have a correction. That's healthy. Um, it can be painful, but it's painful on the margins. What's really painful is when there's a crash and people lose more than half their money in the stock market, especially if they need that money for their retirement. If you don't need money for retirement, corrections, crashes, they don't really matter. They're buying opportunities historically. But people will change how they spend money. So they may go from an international vacation to a staycation. So they may take their vacation from two weeks in Italy to a road trip from San Francisco to LA and maybe hit San Diego. So where the money is spent and the amount of money spent could change if people start tightening their purse strings. They may stop investing in startup companies, invest less, expect more. So that can affect founders. But you know, looking at 2018, 2019, 
The market got ahead of itself, I think, a little bit uh, in 2018. People got really exuberant about Apple, Netflix, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Disney. These are great companies. So they're not going anywhere. And it, some of them can be counter-cyclical. So they can, go the, they can go up in terms of usage in a down market. If people lose their jobs uh, or there's a recession, people might spend more time playing video games. They might spend more time on their pursuits. They might spend more time going to the movies or actually going out to eat. They just may spend less money each time they do it because they may have more free time. I know that sounds crazy. But I like to pick stocks. And I'm not a stock picker. I take that back. I take the long view of the market. It's going to go up on a decade-by-decade basis more than anything else in all likelihood. That's not a perfect statement, but it's more probable um, than not. You have had instances where in Japan, the stock market's gone sideways for over a decade. That could be painful, or real estate goes sideways for over a decade. It can happen. And things can happen that we've never anticipated. So those are called black swans. I think if you were to buy... Netflix, Disney, Google, Apple, uh, that group, I do not believe that group in 10 years will be less relevant than they are today. So let me say that again. Disney, which owns Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, and Disney, and other assets, is going to be more relevant, at least as relevant, and I believe more relevant, 10 years from now, which means their stock would be worth more in 10 years than it is today. Google, same thing. Apple, same thing. Microsoft, same thing. Netflix, same thing. I wouldn't say bulletproof or recession-proof, but I would say they will weather the storm really well. Other people say more consumables like beer you know, or Procter & Gamble, those kind of companies like, oh, people are still going to buy their toothpaste, so it's recession-proof. Uh, maybe car stocks and banking stocks will go down. In a recession, you know, I like to buy uh, or own companies, and I don't trade stocks actively. But I'm actually considering doing that. If the market crashes, I might just plow a bunch of cash into the names I just said, and just ride four or five names that I know from inside information. I shouldn't say inside information that triggers something. I, when I say inside information in this context, I'm saying inside information in that I use their products and services and love them. So I would say more consumer. <laughs> So that would be the opposite of inside information. I don't have inside information on Disney. I don't know anybody who works there really. But the, the, the information I would have is that watching the Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar libraries continue to do Toy Story 5 or 4 or Han Solo or Daredevil, you, you, just, you just know those characters. Like they could literally reboot the entire Star Wars universe and make all nine films again. And they would make just as much money. Let me say that again. You could take the nine Star Wars trilogies, the three trilogies, all nine films. You could remake them in 10 years from now. And they would make as much money, I believe, or close to it, be, still be massively profitable as the original nine. In fact, I believe they should take the last three Star Wars films and remake them in George Lucas's vision, not this Fakaka, J.J. Abrams abomination where Luke Skywalker is a goofball. Ugh. Thanks for killing my childhood with this social justice nonsense Star Wars trilogy. Sorry. Um, I would have liked to seen the main characters be the main characters. What a disaster. Okay, anyway, good question. Let's take another question. All right, this is a core topic on angel investing, and this is uh, in my wheelhouse, I hope. As an angel investor, what criteria do you use to decide whether or not a business is a great investment. Super basic question, but an important one. So we're not saying a great product here. Uh, we're not saying a great founder. We're saying a great investment. Well, a great investment will share a couple of qualities. Number one, uh, you can buy the shares at a low price. And number two, you can sell them at a high price. That is what makes a great investment. In order for that to happen, the founder has to need money from you, an investor. Some founders don't. We talked about Quora. Quora um, itself uh, is funded by a bunch of rich Facebook ex-executives. So they don't need angel investors' money. And if they did take it, they would take it only because it's a friend of theirs or it's at a very high price. So you're not buying low in that situation and you may not even have access to it. So 
it requires to be a great investment that the founder wants your money and is willing to take it. That's a big if. The great deals can sometimes be oversubscribed or not available. And then two, the founder has to want to sell their company at some point or take it public. And the market has to exist for people to want to either buy the company in an M&A arrangement or go public. And the founder has to be willing to take the company public or sell the company. I can tell you some founders do not want to grow fast. They do not want to sell their companies and they don't want to take them public. So you have to have all of those things aligned. So if you were to look at Facebook itself, it was pretty clear that that founder, Zuckerberg, wanted to build a large business. He wanted to build a business like Microsoft, but it was very hard to get in that deal. Sean Parker came out. He offered a bunch of people to invest. He picked his friend Peter Thiel. He punked uh, or trolled Sequoia famously um, and didn't give them the deal because he had had a beef with Sequoia previously, uh, according to the folklore, uh, which is also in the movie, although they don't use the Sequoia's name in the movie. And that is the core. Now, you have to have a business, additionally, putting aside those basic qualifiers that you can buy the shares and the shares of the company want to be bought by somebody eventually. It has to be growing at a very unnatural clip. The natural growth of a business might be, you know, one or 2% a month, you know, the organic growth, 10%, 20%, 30% year over year, 50% year over year. You have to have founders of that company and investors who want to see the company triple its revenue every year. So in the example of Calm, you have a team that was very focused and who wanted to grow the business. And they publicly talked about it doing $80 million a year in revenue run rate. In other words, taking their monthly revenue times to get by 12. I think a couple of months ago, they said it was at 80 million. It might be higher now. It might not. I don't, I can't say. Um even if I do have the information that it was more. Um, so putting that situation, you didn't have founders who were like, you know what, we're doing 3 million this year. You know, well, let's try to grow it to 4 million next year. You add a million in revenue, not easy to do. They said, hey, let's try to grow this as much as we can. So you need to have a product that people love, founders who are willing to grow it and who want to grow it, and then the founders who eventually want to have an exit. In other words, um, you know, you need to have, it's all going to come down to the founders wanting you as an investor and wanting to grow the business. So when you talk to founders, you can say, explain to me how this gets to a hundred million in revenue. If they haven't, if they don't have a plan for that and they say, well, we're not worried about that. And it's like, okay, well then maybe it's not a great business. And it's possible that a founder could build a business and not have aspirations and it just magically happens. But when companies grow, to billions of dollars in revenue in under 10 years, it's because of a deliberate, strategic, planned, and obsessed over, you know, plan. It's an obsessed over plan. It's not happenstance. You don't happen. It's not like finding oil like Norway did, or we did here with Shell in America, where you're like, oh my God, we found a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars or a trillion dollars in oil. They just happen to be sitting here. No, you have to go out and fight to get those customers, to fight to get that revenue, to fight to build a team, you know, and to fight against competitors. It's going to be a dogfight. So you need to have founders who really want it. Okay, great question. It's time for you to turn your idea into a new website, maybe a blog, or you want to publish content, sell products and services of any kind, including, hey, launchfestivalsydney.com, happening June 18th and 19th. We made this gorgeous website with... You guessed it, Squarespace, where you can promote your physical or online business and announce an event like we just did or have any of your special projects up and running in minutes with beautiful, customizable templates that are built by world-class designers and that are optimized for mobile. I always tell everybody on my team, look at it on your phone, then your tablet, then your desktop. And Squarespace is beautifully optimized for each. You can buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions built-in analytics, built-in search engine optimization. It's free and secure hosting with 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week award-winning customer support. We use it. We love it. Go to angel.university. Go to founder.university. Go to Launch Festival Sydney. We love Squarespace because it's beautiful and easy to use. And if you're going to set up an e-commerce site, they put in all that e-commerce functionality every week of every year 
for the last decade. They add more features to Squarespace.com and you, the uh, customer of Squarespace, benefit. Every week, there is strength in numbers and they just make that software better and better and better and you just become the beneficiary of that constant innovation by the Squarespace team. So when you go to squarespace.com and start a free trial, when you're gonna launch, use the offer code TWIST and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I know that you don't need the 10% off, but please use the TWIST code and go ahead and thank at Squarespace. Say thank you at Squarespace for supporting This Week in Startups. Go ahead and do that. Uh, on your Twitter. I really means a lot to you. I'll follow you back. Okay. Thanks again to our friends at Squarespace. We love and use your product every day. Well done. Okay. Let's take another question. This is a long one. I'm being asked to fill the main technical position at a startup. I do believe the idea is great and has legs and I have the funds to not starve. There is no funding at this time. The idea, however, has been worked on for the past few months and the team is basically ready to launch albeit not ready to launch a product a product into a market, but they're ready to launch as a team. There is an idea, and there seems to be a product market fit. Aside from that, there's nothing else. The R&D work has yet to be done. At this moment, I don't know if this is a co-founder position or not, so I would definitely be clarifying that. Any suggestions how to broach the topic? Aside from my imposter syndrome telling me I'll never be able to do what they're asking, what are some of the questions I should be asking, both from the founder and the co-founders, who are, what are some things I should look out for? Okay, so if the product isn't launched yet and the company is under a couple of months old, you're in the first year and they haven't raised funding, you can make a run at being a co-founder. So, you know, if this is a CTO position, you could say, listen, I'd love to join you. I know they got started four months ago, um, but I want to be a co-founder. I'm willing to take half of my salary, but I want to be on par or close to on par with the rest of y'all in terms of equity. And then ask to see the cap table and ask to see the vesting schedule. So is everybody on a standard vesting four-year schedule? Will I be on that same vesting schedule as you? And are you open to me being a co-founder and having that? If you don't ask you don't have a chance of getting it. And if they tell you, you can't see the cap table, we don't, then maybe it means they don't value you and they're not transparent. So it's this early. You'd say, tell me about the cap table. Tell me about the funding plans. Uh, if there's two other co-founders, are you equal co-founders or does one of you have 80%, 120%? And if so, why? Did the person who put in 80% also put in the first $500,000? Or did they come up with the idea? They set up the cap table. They set up the first investor. Who knows? Uh, maybe they have some rationale for that. So I would try to understand the equity ownership and what your pardon is in it and if they're transparent. You could say that to them. If I were to join a startup as opposed to getting the big dollars at a big company, I would want to be involved as a co-founder. That's what I'm looking for. And uh, I know I can take off your hands all this technical risk because I'm good at what I do. So come out guns blazing, no imposter syndrome. You're going to be CTO. Come out guns blazing. I can handle the entire technical part of this. I can reduce the technical risk. I want to work for a transparent company. I want to be on par and be a co-founder. Is that something you're interested in, yes or no? I'm willing to make the sacrifices that you two are making. And I'm also willing to have a reasonable discussion about equity in a transparent way. Because from what I understand, listening to This Week in Startups, reading online about startups, transparent discussions about equity and ownership and vesting schedules day one gets everybody aligned and everybody can just focus on building a successful business. So I want to be aligned with you two. I want to be perfectly aligned and I want to have the difficult discussion on the way in about equity, ownership, and who, decision making. So who's the CEO here? I know you guys are co-founders, uh, but Susan, are you going to be the CEO or Steve, are you going to be the CEO? And when it comes down to, are we going to take money or not? And you two have a disagreement. How is that going to get resolved? How are we going to resolve that? If we have a board, who's going to take the board seats? Will I be able to be a board observer as a co-founder or not? Will I be able to come to the board meetings? You just want to tackle that stuff uh, head on. And having multiple options, always a good thing. So if you're coming to them and saying, listen, Google and Slack made me offers. I've got a 300K offer, a 200K offer. And here I'm going to take zero uh, for the first year. And I'll defer my 100K salary until year two when we get funding. And if we get funding, I suggest we all just take the same draw. 5K each if we raise a million or less. 
10K each per month if we raise over a million. So how does that sound to you? I want to be at the table. You want to have a seat at the table. And if they want to run an opaque organization and look at you as a widget, well, you know everything you need to know. If you're going to be a, uh, if you're going to be out of the room, have no power, don't know what the driving force is, and you're not going to have a seat at the table, you might as well go work for the big money and go out, go to Google and take Max Money for making their ad network 16% more efficient every year. You know, like join that team um, and just take all their money and you know sleep well at night. If you're going to have to stay up at night wondering if this company is going to exist next year and doing this kind of hard work. You need to have a seat at the table. Get that seat at the table and see if they're open to that transparent discussion about the cap table, the funding plans, the vesting schedule, et cetera, division of labor, what happens in a stalemate. Will we do two out of three of us vote? What happens if it doesn't work out for somebody and in month nine they leave? Are you going to give them zero equity? Or are you going to give them you know, half of their first year's equity? You know, Have those uh, difficult conversations. But great question. And I wish you luck in your journey. Okay, let's take another question. This is from Quora, Startups and Entrepreneurship. What is some popular advice for startup founders that is misguided or wrong? Okay, this is a great question. We get this often. Um, God, there is so much advice out there uh, that I think listening to all this advice and taking all this advice is the misguided wrong position. Take all this advice in. Write it down in your book. And what you'll find over time is that half of the people, uh, in some cases, say you should be an enterprise company. Half of them say you should be a consumer company. And let's say it comes down to that decision. You were going to make software and you had the choice to sell it to other businesses or compete with those businesses and go direct to the consumer. What you want to do is decide for yourself what life you want to live. And all of the startup advice is super situational. If you're rich and you can fund the company yourself, the advice I would give you on funding strategies is different than if you have no money. If you sold a company already and you have massive credibility, the advice I would give you on valuation would be different if you're a first-time founder. A first-time founder, I would tell you go to an incubator or accelerator or go to an incubator and then to an accelerator. Go to an incubator like 500 startups, then go to an accelerator like Launch Accelerator or Y Combinator for people who have products that are launched already. That might be better advice. But if you already have money in the bank and you've made $10 million, well, you want to spend the first 500000 yourself, preserve your cap table, and then go straight to a $3 million seed round. Or find a co-investor and you co-lead the first round of funding, right? So all of this advice is situational. It's like poker advice. If you said, what should I do? I have aces and I'm in the big blind. I need to know if you're playing in a tournament. I need to know if you're playing in a cash game. I need to know what hour of the cash game it is. I need to know how you perceive the other players at the table. Are they drunk? Are they crazy? Do they care about the money or not? Are they professional poker players or not? Are you uh, up or down? How do people perceive you at the table? There's so many factors. Now, it's great that you have aces. It's great that you have it in the button. But did three people raise or did everybody check? And, you know, or did everybody just call the $100 big blind and you got $600 in the pot? Well, you only want to have maybe play against one or two players. So maybe you want to just bet the size of the pot and hope to get one person to call, right? You don't want to overbet and have everybody fold. You get the idea. So all of this is situational. Don't get uh, what I call uh, founder pinball where the founder is getting bounced around with all this conflicting advice. The best, best advice is to study your data, to study your customers, and to spend a deep amount of time debating these issues with your team. You can get outside advice, of course, but the truth is many of these investors have not worked in your vertical. Sometimes you'll have somebody like... Uh, you know, Jason Lemkin from Saster, who has, or Chamath, who worked at Facebook. Now, they're going to have deep, deep industry knowledge. So, what they tell you about running a social network in Chamath's case or running a SaaS business in Lemkin's case, that's going to be spot on, really important for you to consider that. I always like to consider the source. Most accelerator incubators are run by people who have failed in the real world. They have not had any success, so they want to go teach. They want to go give advice. 
Elon Musk and Larry Page and Zuckerberg are not running accelerators. Okay. They're busy running their own businesses. So often you'll have people running accelerators who just haven't had any success in life. Be careful. Consider the source. If somebody who's had two startups you never heard of and they didn't have a big exit, maybe they sh shouldn't be taking their advice. So considering the source of the advice, also critical, great question. Okay. I love this one. What cultural differences are there between startups in Silicon Valley and startups in New York? Great question. In New York, you're going to have people who in large part have never worked at a billion dollar plus company. You may have somebody who worked at Tumblr, sold for a billion, Etsy went public, Kickstarter hasn't gone public, but you know has tens of millions in revenue, I would guess, at this point. So you might have people who've worked there in those places. In Silicon Valley, many times you'll have somebody who was on the founding team or was uh, you know in the first two or three years of Google, who then went to Facebook, who then went to Uber, and who's now at Robinhood or Twitter or something. You know, you'll see this, oh, they've done it before. And they're thinking big. So they are very driven by equity in the company. Somewhere in New York, you might not have that. You might have people who are worked in the, I don't know, magazine business or on Wall Street or in advertising and publishing, and now they're coming into a tech startup. So they bring with them the baggage slash experience of working for New York Magazine, and now they're going to go work for Medium, or they worked uh, at Goldman Sachs, and now they're going to work at Robinhood. Sometimes that baggage is bad. They're going to bring the wrong lessons to your company. Other times, maybe they're disruptive, and they're going to know that the techniques at Goldman Sachs don't apply to Robinhood, or the techniques that they learned... Uh, you know, at an ad agency don't apply to Snapchat. So that's the main difference is where did these people work previously? Here, you might have this incredible delusional optimism that I see in Silicon Valley, as opposed to the East Coast, where people can be a bit cynical, I'll be honest. The further East you go, the more cynical they can become. You know, if you're in London, people, are, you tell them you're a founder, they're like, oh, well, you, uh, you're trying to get over on somebody. Then you go to Paris and France, they're like, Oh, you're an entrepreneur. You think you're better than everybody? Like, literally, go east, more pessimism in the old world. You go west, you go to California, and then you go on to China. Uh, you might see more optimism and this more openness to um, taking chances and risk taking. So, I, I see a, the risk taking and the goalposts are much further here, and people have seen it. So, in New York, there's never been a trying to think here, maybe double click, but you really haven't had the $10 billion, $100 billion companies like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, in this cohort, Facebook, Google, in the cohort before Twitter, and then before that, Apple and Microsoft, Cisco. You just, the scale of things is so different out here. That doesn't mean you can't build a great business in New York. Trust me, if I could have been an investor in Kickstarter, Etsy, Tumblr, I would have been. I, I was a... I did have shares in Tumblr because I was an LP in a company. I was an LP in a fund that was an investor. So, but that's two degrees away. So that's the main difference. I do see a lot of people getting sick and tired of the horrible, disastrous government and city and quality of life in the San Francisco Bay Area because it's so crazy expensive. You know, value is a perception that is largely driven by cost. So. If Disneyland was $1,000, you'd say it's a ripoff. And if you got in there for $10, you'd be like, this is great. So they kind of figured out 110 bucks is just the right price for you to not feel like you got cheated, but it wasn't too cheap and they maximized revenue. It's similar here. You know, people living in San Francisco for $4,000 a month and having to step over human excrement and, you know, have your car broken into every, you know, twice a year, that's a pretty horrible experience. Um but to live in Tokyo for $1,500 a month and have this incredible city that's high functioning and this incredible lifestyle filled with culture, you're seeing people from New York and California move to Tokyo. Young people are moving to Tokyo to live there because it's a better city and, uh, and the cost basis is better. And then people in Tokyo were telling me that startup founders are moving to Kyoto. So you have people from Tokyo moving to Kyoto to live there because it's such a beautiful city, quality of life is so high, and the cost is so low compared to that. 
that's an interesting, I think, thing for New York is a lot of people get tired of the high cost of living and the low value of the city. The cost ratio is terrible. And New York seems better. It seems better to spend 3000 a month on an apartment in Brooklyn or 2000 a month, 2500 a month than 4000 here. So you actually have people fleeing to New York to get out of the toxicity that is San Francisco in 2019. Um, if I had my druthers, I might move back to Manhattan. I might want to live there again if I could buy the Knicks. Unfortunately, the value of NBA teams is accelerating faster than the value of tech stocks at the moment, unfortunately. So no Knicks for, for J.Cal. If I could pass the hat, I might. Mm. Oh, my God. That's my dream. Bring a championship to New York. Okay. Great question. This has been an amazing episode, if I do say so myself. Thank you, too. Uh, the team here uh, and to all the sponsors who have supported the show over the last year. Couldn't have done it without you. Thanks to all the fans of the podcast for participating, writing reviews, sharing the podcast, retweeting at TWI Startups. It really warms my heart when you talk about the episodes on social media. So if you like an episode or if you think there's a great guest, go ahead and shout that out on social uh, and make sure you see me at Jason on Instagram, Twitter, uh, or on LinkedIn, Cora, wherever. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.